ಜಮರೂಪುರಿಮಾಧರಿಂಗಿರಿಬೋರಾಧಿಕಮಧಾವಸಂ ಪ್ರಾಪ್ತಯಶ್ಚಿಪುತ್ರಿಪಾಸಂದುಹ್ಯೈವಚಿತಾನಂಪವಾನೆಭ್ಯವೈಷ್ಣವೇಭ್
So today a topic was suggested to talk about Guru Tattva <clears throat> a little bit from an, uh, maybe not the most typical perspective, if you, if you want. And that's the, the perspective I took in my, in my book. I, I wrote the whole chapter on the topic. Uh, and the topic of today will be something like the Guru crisis, navigating trust amidst betrayal. <laughs> uh, so again, of course, the guru-disciple relationship is ideally the most beautiful possible thing that should be there. Uh, but also we have encountered a few templates or scenarios where the situation was not coming out as it expected, so to say, for one reason or another. Here we won't be addressing any specific details and points. Here I will talk to you with my unauthorized biography and so on. <laughs> Although I have some experience in the in the field about betrayal and so on and so forth. Uh, and probably, of course, that in part took me to, to feel the need to express some things that I felt were needed to be worded in relation to this topic. And I, I wrote a chapter in my book that is called Issues and Tissues Between Guru and Disciple. Actually, my original intention with tissues was you have different layers of something. So those are tissues. But most understood tissues like the paper that you use oh, when you are like crying, which is also applicable, it's okay. <laughs> but just clarifying which was my original intention when, when naming that chapter. No, like issues and tissues, no, different layers to explore in the guru-disciple relationship. So today I, I may try to share a few thoughts and, and a summary, if you will, of that chapter, which is not a very short chapter, so I will just touch upon some of the few points. And I would like, first of all, to give some introduction, which maybe the introduction will be most of the class, <laughs> about the ideal nature of the guru-disciple relationship and how both guru and disciples should, what to expect from each other in their relationship. Because again, it's a relationship. It's a, as we were talking yesterday, everything is relational. Bhakti means I'm developing my relationship with Krishna. And in the context of that, there is the relationship between guru and disciple. Relationship, which means reciprocal, two-way street. Two, two parts have the role to play in, in this particular equation. So I may first begin with that, and at the end we may consider a few words on how to navigate trust amid betrayal. Like I also quote in my book one interesting word by Albert Einstein. He will say... If I will have 60 minutes to solve a problem, I will spend 55 minutes trying to understand the problem and then five minutes solving it. <laughs> so today we will try to address the same thing before trying to go quickly, how to solve this first, let's understand the problem. Because <laughs> many times we rush into trying to solve things, but we don't understand what is there to solve. And when we don't understand the problem, our attempt to solve the problem is creating itself a bigger problem. <laughs> because we are trying to solve something that which was not the actual problem. So it's important, to, first of all, we understand what is there to solve potentially. And then let's see what we can say about it. But of, and, and part for which I, I want to spend some time in that is also because, and why I'm talking about these topics, which for some people may be a little bit like unusual, I don't know, even controversial for some, for me personally, it's necessary. That's basically why. Uh, 
And because if we want to talk about healing, healing trauma, healing abuse, healing pain, healing, healing, whatever healing women need, first, before healing, we need to acknowledge who needs to be healed. Again, first, before solving the problem, we have to understand the problem. Before healing, we have to spend some time acknowledging what we need to heal. Sorry. Uh, and then we have to address what needs to be healed. Uh, and we need to speak about that. We need to find a language to talk about that. Sometimes we, we don't have a language to address certain issues. So if we don't have the language, we cannot talk about that. So we need to invoke a certain language so we can enter into these situations. Because if not, we are not talking about that. We may be silent about something that needs to be talked about. And sometimes, I mean, I'm not, this, is not, this may not be an accurate comparison, but if you study the history of humanity, many of the main totalitarian regimes thrived because of people silently complying to them. I'm not just putting the responsibility on the audience, but in part, yes. <laughs> so, so somehow we can also become one silent member, not with bad intention, but just because not having the language to talk about that, and somehow allowing certain abuse to happen, even in our lives or in others' lives. Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> that's it, where to begin? Let's, we can share a few words about Guru Tattva. Mm -hmm. Guru Tattva is one of the most difficult tattvas to understand. Tattva means like different things, truth, reality, uh, the reality of the Guru, the truth about the Guru, a category of existence, Guru Tattva. So to say, Guru Tattva is one of the most complex tattvas to understand. It's not so easy. Don't don't make the mistake of thinking, I already know about that one. So it, that's not so difficult, Maharaj. Maybe that means we didn't understand it. <laughs> so so if, if a tattoo is one of the most difficult to understand, it means it's one of the most easy to misunderstand. <laughs> Another way of putting that. So we should be careful because it, it lends itself to be misunderstood due to its very complexity. Uh, so guru, something that we can say, some basic points, you may all know this, so sorry to bother you with that. First of all, we have to understand that guru is one and not two. The non-dual foundation of guru tattva. There are not two gurus. There are only one guru and different representations of that one guru, so to say. It's important to bear that non-dual principle is mine. As reality is non-dual, we were talking in some class ago, and on the base of, not, of that non-duality, there is diversity. So similarly, guru is a non-dual principle on which basis there is a multiplicity of expressions of that non-dual. So Krishna is the original guru, the one. In the Bhagavatam, he's called many times Paranguru, Paranguru Guru, the supreme guru of all gurus. Hmm. So... As we mentioned, I think I mentioned that yesterday, before you consider an individual as your guru, first we have to make Krishna our guru. Or we have to understand the original guru is Krishna and the different representatives are there representing God's will. In the words of Krishna Das, Kavirash Goswami, you have Chaitya Guru, God in your heart, and the outer manifestation of God in your heart is the human guru that instructs you. But it begins with Krishna no, in the heart. So it's important to make that point. With this, I'm not downplaying one expression or the other. 
but we have to put everything in its proper place. <coughs> and of course, when we speak about guru, guru basically refers to the principle of divine revelation, of divine guidance, and it's not limited to Krishna in the heart and to my human guru, so to say. It can be expressing anywhere. No? In the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam, we have the famous section of the Brahman Abadud speaking about 24 gurus. No? And, and those are quite unexpected. He begins talking about the earth and the sun and the moon and the snake and a prostitute. <laughs> no? Like Bilma Mangal Thakur, when he writes his Krishna Karnamrita, he offers pronouns to Krishna first as his foremost guru. Then he offers prayers to pranam to Chintamani, the prostitute, and his Siksha guru. So it begins a little bit like, wow, no? <laughs> he's not going to the usual first human guru. First to God as his guru and then to a prostitute. No? That act as his Siksha guru, if you know his, the story of his life. And then also to his Diksha guru. So, so my point is, we have to be flexible in terms of how we are understanding the idea of guru and not over limiting and hyper hyper localizing that this particular person that's that's guru no but when with one guru of course eventually we have it in the words of Srila Siddhar Maharaj we are invited to enter the land of gurus no. there is a land made of where even the earth is guru as this section of the bottom proved oh my earth is guru Chaitanya Charitamrita say Baikuntira Priti Vidi Adi Sakalach in my from Vaikuntha upwards in the spiritual world, even the soil is made of transcendental substance. So the soil is your guru. Every atom in Vaikuntha can is made of the higher substance than what we are made, Srila Sirmaraj will say. So we we have to, of course, if we are to enter into a land of gurus, we are we have to train our vision to see gurus everywhere. And generally that begins by accepting one guru. <laughs> And that guru starts to teach us and show us how guru is everywhere. No? Ideally, guru is not telling just, I am only the guru. I am all, nobody else can be guru. It's only me. No, the guru has to train our vision. So we detect the presence of this principle of guru tattva everywhere. So the technical terms for this, and you may already know them. This is just my little daily Sanskrit torturing to all of you. Samasti and Vyasti guru. So Samasti means the... Universal guru principle and Vyasti means the localized guru principle. So Samasti guru means again Krishna himself, the universal principle of guru, like the agency of guru tattva. And Vyasti means the agent or the agents representing the agency that will be bona fide according to their degree of representation, which are many, as we know. Representation of the divine is not in black and white, it's not like you are 100% representative of God or you are a cheater. No. There are shades of gray between black and white as well. Mm -hmm. So that in a few words. And of course, Shastra will be speaking about the qualifications of the guru. I've been, uh, well, we'll talk about later, but proficient in Shastra, learned in the scripture to reply to being able to answer the questions of the disciple, have an internal realization of that, control mind, senses. And the disciple has to be very sincerely inquiring for the truth. Now, again, there is a, if you understand, study the 
the three main verses in the scripture that describe the relation between guru and disciple, one in the Bhagavatam, one in the Gita, one in the Upanishads, which basically say the same, they start speaking about the duty of the disciple, which is important because we may, we may be, as I like to say, very concerned about where's my guru, where's my guru? But the first question is where I am as a disciple. Is the disciple in me ready? To find to see Guru, because if I if I'm ready as a disciple, I don't even need to find Guru, but Guru will find me. Oh. <laughs> it's not so much about I'm going on a quest to to get the Guru. No, like I control the situation. No, no, you try to be honest about your inquiry for truth, your willingness to surrender in a healthy way, and you will be found, so to say. You will be <laughs> found by Guru. So the ideal nature of the relationship between guru and disciple, how the, 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 the contract between the two is to be established, so to say, because it's a relationship. They have to know each other, have to love each other, serve each other. <coughs> Rupa Goswami says, Bishram Bena Guru Siva. That's, that's the main line for us. Bishram Bena Guru Siva. One, one is to serve the guru with Bishramba, which means affectionate intimacy. A type of deep friendship has to be developed in the relationship. It may not be there on day one, but it has to go in that direction. Vishramba is very nicely described by Jiva Goswami as a type of trust and confidence so profound that the two parts kind of lose their sense of identity in, in, the, in the deep intimacy that they are sharing between one another. So that's a very interesting way of describing trust and confidence and how ideally the relationship between teacher and student has to blossom and flourish to be a guru is not a how to say to be a guru is not a position to be a guru is service that's important it's not that okay i'm guru now i have the position of being no no that's a service a service position is a position of service <laughs> Not a position devoid of service or a position to be served. No, no, it's a position to serve like you have never served before. Actually. I mean, if, if one thinks I will be a guru to be served, then better change your life prospect. That won't work. <laughs> no. So it's a position of service. A guru is, as I like to mention, a guru is a servant of the faith of, a, of the disciple. That, that's the idea. The disciple has a faith, tender faith, and the guru is to nourish that faith, take care of that gradually blossoming bind. Uh, so he's a servant of the shraddha, of the faith of the disciple. That's how a guru should ideally identify. It's not like I'm the master, I'm the owner of my disciple, I'm the whatever, but I'm the servant of the faith of my disciple. And I'm willing to accompany that student in whatever their faith may require honestly. And they, of course, the student will reciprocate accordingly and lovingly to such a loving guide. Or Srila Maharaj always likes to say, Guru is our own potential appearing in front of us. That's a very way, beautiful way of putting it. Our own potential appears in front of us in the form of a Guru. All that we can be is embodied in that figure. So in that sense, and the guru will help us to attain that potential. 
in that sense, we could say the guru is a facilitator of potential. That's another way of describing the role of the guru. The guru is trying to facilitate, to help us to attain our highest potential. And we as disciples are willing to allow that to happen, trying to not put more obstacles in the way. And also, as we say yesterday, both guru and disciple are first and foremost disciples. I mean, the guru is also a disciple. <laughs> it's even as guru, again, as guru, you are entering into a new role of servanthood, of service, of being a disciple, of your guru, of your own guru, but also of serving your disciple. Again, it's ideally it's all to be conceived in terms of seva, not in terms of being served at all. That that may be a byproduct that one has to accept in service also <laughs> it's all to be filtered in terms of in service to others so guru and disciple are both servants not only servants of their respective gurus but they are servants of the common common idea a common goal divine love the two of them are working together for that project so to say ultimately the goal is Krishna Prem, divine love, both for the guru, both for the disciple, for everyone. So in that sense, guru-disciple is a, it's a teamwork. The two of them are working together to nourish the ideal of divine love. Although, of course, the guru is ideally more advanced than the disciple. That's idea. It doesn't mean that the guru cannot still attain newer and newer degrees of divine love. Because the nature of divine love is always expanding. You follow my point? Even if you're an Uttam Uttam Mahabhagavat, the highest type of the book, doesn't mean that you cannot continue expanding your love. Actually, the opposite. If you are on such a level, you will be really expanding and expanding the unlimited limits of love. <laughs> so both for the disciple and for the guru, both will be serving that unending, ever-expansive ideal of divine law. So in that sense, the teamwork. And also an important point is that in one sense, of course, the classical template is that the disciple is learning from the guru. But we should not forget that also the guru will be learning from the disciple. Not, not in the sense that the disciple will lecture the guru and sit down that I will struggle you today. Today is my turn. No, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that if a guru is advanced and bona fide, he or she, just in case, <laughs> will, will be able to learn from everywhere, to draw teaching from... The more advanced you are, the more capacity you have to learn from everyone, including your disciple. You follow? It's not that I'm guru, I have nothing to learn from you. I'm only here to teach you. But that doesn't speak so well about the adhikar of the guru. The guru is very advanced. He or she will be, and in, technically speaking, the guru will have more capacity to learn than the disciple because he's more advanced. She's more. Therefore, we could say the guru will, in potential, will be able to learn more from the disciple than the disciple from the guru. <laughs> you follow my point? It doesn't mean again that the disciple will be lecturing the guru, but I'm just saying that in principle, the guru fits more. He or she's more advanced he or she will be more capable to learn that sometimes the disciple may be capable to learn from the guru. We gave the example, I don't know when, yesterday, 
of Vyasadeva. Vyasadeva for us in the Bhagavatam, in the whole Vedic tradition, is like the archetype, prototype of the Guru figure. On Guru Purnim, we celebrate once a year Guru Purnim. Actually, that's Vyasadeva's birthday. So that's Vyasa Purnim. So, but we call it Guru Purnim. So then you see how close Vyasa is to the ideal of being a Guru. And he in the Bhagavatam is being the Guru of Sukadev Goswami, of so many others as well, but mostly of Sukadev Goswami. He's instructing Sukadev in the Bhagavatam. And then what? Sukadev Goswami is speaking Bhagavat to Parikshit Maharaj. And where is Vyasadev there? He's among all of you in the audience listening to his disciples speaking Bhagavatam. So again, the Guru being willing to learn, even if it comes from his, if, if the divine current is coming, I don't care if it's my disciple, my cousin, my dog, my guru. It's coming. Let's be there. Krishna Bhakti Rasa Bhavita Abhmati Kriyatam Yadikutopi Labhyate. Famous verse by Rupa Goswami. Say so one is to look for this Krishna Rasa. Kriyatam Yadikutopi Labhyate. It doesn't matter from where it's coming from. If you have Tatra Laulam Apyakalam Mulya, if you have real greed, you will just take it from wherever it's coming. It's not like, I only will take if it comes from my guru, not my disciple, or from this person, from this lineage, from this affiliation. If something genuine is coming that can really nourish your heart, I mean, if you are greedy, which is the Adhikar, the qualification, if you are greedy, you won't be making all those conditions, so to say. So Vyasadeva is giving that example. He's really willing to learn and as a guru he's learning from hearing from his disciples Sukadev. not only Vyasa is there Narad Muni is next to Vyasa Narad Muni is Vyasa's guru so Narad Muni is listening Harikata from his disciples disciple from his spiritual grandchild again there is not this idea of well but he's the, the disciple of my disciple I should not be listening uh, everyone is a servant at the end of the day everyone is again open to honor Harikata, open to be nourished, open to develop their love. If you are really on that position, if you are really humble, you won't be having a problem of taking one position or the other. It's all different roles of service. Let me share one section that I, I have a few sections from my book that I want to share, brief ones in this connection. In this connection that I'm talking about, the two of them, guru disciple, learning from each other, I'm saying here, <clears throat> without a disciple, one cannot officiate as a guru. In an even deeper sense, the guru needs the disciple in order to learn from him, just as the disciple needs and learns from his guru in his own way. They learn from each other and need each other. Therefore, the ideal guru-disciple relationship is not so much as hierarchical, monarchical or pyramidal relationship, but the result of a circular or even spiral collaboration where the sharing and nourishing are always mutual and never unidirectional, flowing in every possible direction. So just a way of wrapping up this particular point. No? Guru disciple relationships, again, a teamwork. Of course, there is a, a hierarchy in the sense Guru disciple, like father child, but at the same time, there should be Bish from Bena again. This deep trust, friendship. If you pay attention, mostly every relationship has to ideally evolve and 
converging it to a type of friendship. Your relationship with your father, parents should become ideally a type of friendship. Still they are your parents, but now they are your friends also, a newly discovered layer. <laughs> your relationship with your sisters, brothers should be a type of friendship. Your relationship with your children should be a type of friendship gradually. With your wife or husband should be a type of friendship and the guru as well. So that's a universal principle we can detect, so to say. Where again, all of us are serving the same ideal. It's a circular collaboration or a spiral, if you will. It's a circle, but always expanding. Not so much like extremely pyramidal, which sometimes is the case. <clears throat> Something that I want also to mention that is important to consider in the guru-disciple relationship is, as I mentioned, the guru is expected to have deep knowledge of Shastra. Shabdi, Paricha, Nishnatam, says the Bhagavatam. Guru has to be Nishnatam, has to be bathed. Snan, you know the word snan, like bathe, bathing? So Nishnatam, so it has to be deeply immersed into Shabda, into the revealed knowledge, has to have spiritual insight of that knowledge, not only theory, but then uh, Upashamashrayam, says the Bhagavatam. Upasama Ashrayam is a nice word. Upasama Ashrayam is the Guru has to have taken shelter into in tranquility. That's a good word. You have to take shelter in tranquility. And the implications of that is the Guru has to have controlled mind and senses. And that implies he or she has to have a balanced humanity. That's how I like to put it. You have to be emotionally, psychologically, humanly balanced. Hmm? Control mind and sense that you have to have adhikar. The, the guru has to have different types of adhikars, of eligibility, qualification. Having knowledge of Shastra, having realization of that knowledge, but also being a balanced human being, psychologically speaking. Because the two are not the same always. You can be very advanced spiritually and somehow be a little bit dysfunctional on a social level. It can happen. You can learn the stories of, I don't know, Bamsi Das Bhavaji Maharaj, even Gorkishore Das Bhavaji. They were hyper advanced. But on the dynamics of relating to one another on a social level, they were avadut. They were like from another world, so to say. So they were not so much into the dynamics of relating to the world and instructing people and guiding them and, and addressing their own situations because they weren't otherworldly. And it's perfect, it's okay. But for to be a guru, to be someone who is extending this message to the world and accompanying people in their journey, you have to have some adhikar to empathize with what's going on in the life of, of the other person. Because if that's not there, even if you are very advanced spiritually, you have lots of knowledge, you have good intention, you are a good person, <laughs> but you are not so capable or even what to speak, you may have some unaddressed human issues, unresolved trauma. It can happen. I mean, who is free from that? I mean, there are so many layers of that. So even if you have something of that and it has not been properly addressed and acknowledged, you can create situations of abuse toward your disciple, even if that was not your intention. You may not have that intention at all, 
but your own unresolved issues ends up being poured <laughs> into the other person in the context of the relationship. Mm -hmm. And in fact, as I mentioned in my book, many of the most traumatic uh, abuses many times were done by people who had unresolved human issues. They were not bad persons. They were just raw, not fully cooked on a human level, so to say. Uh, they were unresolved human issues and they were unaware that they had unresolved human issues. So that became so normalized for them that that ended up being uh, taking the shape of one form of abuse or another. So that's the point I'm trying to mention here, which is connected to today's topic. You know? If these unresolved issues are not first acknowledged, and I'm not talking here only about the guru, we a disciple have to also have that same discipline. If we do not address that, we are just perpetrating the same pattern over and over again in time. You are passing that on to others. So I use <clears throat> the expression in my book, sometimes in the name of parampara, we may end up passing unresolved trauma to others. That's not parampara. No, but parampara is not to pass to the next generation your own unresolved trauma, but to resolve your trauma and pass to others the result of your resolved trauma. So to say, the experience of that, the maturity of that, <clears throat> plus so many other things. Mm -hmm. Again, all the things can be happening unconsciously. I'm not saying that there's bad intention there, but unless we become aware and, and, and work on that, we may be just passing unresolved issues. And the new generation may be taking that thinking, oh, this is divine revelation coming from Parampara. Sometimes, yes, but sometimes it's unresolved trauma that I need to separate mm -hmm. but of course again ideally a guru is someone with balanced humanity apart from knowledge of shastra and inner realization and in that sense a guru becomes and would i like to use the term an elder no? an elder figure for us you know we all need elders if you study humanity in all these different traditions the, the tribe the village there was always the elder there and it was like a person with experience with uh, how to say humility with knowledge with wisdom with willingness to help uh, yeah an elder is someone who can has the capacity to influence so many people but is not willing to do that also it's not like i want to influence everyone but by their experience and power and knowledge they can but it's not that they're they have the desire themselves they are like satisfied, peaceful, and that qualifies them as, as, as per, further as elders. <clears throat> so anyhow, this is a little bit on, on, the, on the topic of some words, on the ideal hmm, templates between guru and disciple. And let me now go to a few of the dysfunctional templates that sometimes may end up in experiences of abuse or even betrayal, as today's title is mentioning. Uh, that we need to acknowledge, that we need to address, that we need to name and frame, not pointing an individual, but just understanding the sin, not condemning the sinner, of course. And again, this is not only pointing at potential deviations in a guru. Again, as disciples, we have to do our part. There is responsibility in both directions. So something that we as students should be careful of is not to uh, engage in <coughs> sorry 
in over idealization, which is easy to do. To over idealize someone means to over expect something. Also, over idealization takes to over expectation. And this can happen from disciple to guru, but also it can happen from guru to disciple. And when we are over idealizing, over expecting, that can create an unhealthy relationship, too demanding, too frustrating, because we, I don't know, we expect it. And when I say over idealizing, I'm not saying how to say it. Let's give example. The guru, your guru can be a pure devotee, but still you can over idealize your guru. <laughs> it doesn't mean like, no, because he's a pure devotee, he can never be over, over idealized enough. You can go beyond of what a guru can do, even as a pure devotee. If you think my guru is uh, pure devotee, therefore he's omniscient. You are over idealizing your guru. Guru is not omniscient. Nowhere in Shastri say that. Or because my pure devotee, my guru is a pure devotee, he, whatever, he's omnipotent and he can do anything like Krishna. And that's a little too much. No? If you equate the guru with Krishna in every sense, then that's Mayabad, basically. No. Of course, there is a connection between Guru and Krishna. We are not totally disconnecting that. But if you make that absolute, then what's the difference between one and the other? You end up with an impersonal philosophy. Mm -hmm. So we, should, uh, we shouldn't feel the need to over-idealize anyone. We should try to relate to the person for who the person is. And try to get as, re as a real picture as possible of who is on the other side, basically. Both, again, from disciple to guru, from guru to disciple. Mm -hmm. If one is over-idealizing, Srila Prabhupada will say that over-idealization is an insult. <laughs> Interestingly, he, he expresses like, if someone, is if someone sees you and starts to see you for more of than what you are and starts to praise you for something you are not, that's actually an insult. <laughs> That's not an, a realistic praise because I'm not talking about who you actually are, but I'm just like over-imagining and idealizing and praising that, that you are not. <laughs> and if you accept that, of what to speak, if you even promote more of that, <laughs> encourage more of that, that's a form of insult, probably, I will say, interestingly. Mm -hmm. And of course, in the beginning, we are not condemning if we are over-idealizing, that happens. I mean, that happens. It's unavoidable. Uh, sometimes for different reasons in our need for one thing or the other, we tend to see the other. Even in what to speak, guru-disciple relationship, sometimes in, in, a, I don't know, in a romantic partnership, uh, the, the two parts will see each other like they will over-idealize each other many times. Like, oh, you are like the ideal perfect fit that I needed just to and the other person is feeling the same. But actually many of them in the beginning, and I'm not saying this always, but many of us in, in, in those types of relationships are getting together because of loneliness, not because of love. I'm so lonely that I need you to fill my gap, and you are so lonely that you need me to fill your gap. And then we get together and it seems like, wow. Of course, after some time, still both are lonely. <laughs> and they say, oh, I, I, I thought you were the person, but you are not, sorry. So let's take a distance, and I'm feeling lonely, so can we try again? Okay. But there's, ah, oh, now I'm not lonely anymore. For a few, for a weekend, 
then I'm feeling lonely again. So the problem is they were not full in themselves before. They were not understanding like we talked the other day. Krishna loves me unconditionally. I'm already loved. I'm already accepted. I don't need to be looking for someone to feel that. Krishna is feeling that better than anyone else. So I'm approaching someone else from that place of knowing myself to be loved by God. So I don't need you to play that role, which will be impossible and exhausting. Imagine if I get together with someone. Please, you play the role of God in my life for me. It's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> so if both of us already get together with some foundational balance and fulfillment, we won't be over-expecting from each other. We won't be over-demanding from each other. It will be a more balanced, realistic relationship. So in a different way, between guru and disciple, somehow it's, there should be something like that. Because if I, as a disciple, I approach my guru with an ending, unresolved human issues, probably I will expect that my guru becomes my psychologist, becomes my financial advisor, my romantic uh, coach, <laughs> My friend, my father, my husband, sometimes you have all these different. So we may be looking for the guru for the wrong reasons, basically. So it's the role of the guru also to make sure that the disciple is looking for the guru for the right reasons. It's part of the role of the guru to take some time to filter that appropriately. And again, in the beginning, there may be over-praise, over-expectation. Can you move so I don't lose silence? Thank you. So at the beginning, there may be over-expectation, over-idealization. And the guru may see that. Okay, this new the disciples are like thinking that I'm like whatever. That I came from the spiritual world while the guru knows I'm not coming from the spiritual world. And the gurus realizes, okay, I cannot stop them from thinking like that immediately. They may need to think like that for a few days, for some time. They may need like uh, to be a little bit like even fanatical sometimes. Like when a child thinks, my daddy is the best daddy of the world. And they will tell that to other children as well. Uh, my daddy is the best daddy of the world. Uh, okay, they have a few years to think like that. Eventually they will realize there are other daddies and there is a place for every child to think the same from their daddy. And I need to learn. And probably my daddy is not the best daddy in the world either. <laughs> but he's my daddy and I love him for all the things. No? But also I, I'm seeing his faults and all. But I love him despite including all that. But in the beginning, we may be more, again, over-idealizing, over-expecting, fanatical. So the guru can see, okay, this is coming from my disciple. I have to allow that for some time. They may need it. But the guru has to be very careful I, that he or she is not buying into that game. You follow my point? The guru may receive a lot of praise or a lot of dedication from their disciple, but also the guru has to have the adhikar, the capacity to process all the dedication and praise that is coming, to process in terms of service and not to think, oh, this is for me, I'm this, I'm that, and so on and so forth. Hmm? Because if the guru is receiving more dedication from people than he's able to process, that may compromise his her standing as a guru, his position. You follow my point? If you have 3,000 people every day praising you, worshiping you, falling at your feet, I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm saying 
you have to have some capacity to digest that <laughs> without thinking you are the center of the universe, basically. So the guru has to be very also careful and humble, acknowledging this is how much I can process this and establish a situation that is sustainable for the guru, for the disciple. Because as we mentioned, if, if, if it's not handled properly, over-idealization, over-expectation leads to dehumanize people. If I over-idealize you, I'm not allowing you to be who you are, but I'm I'm putting you in something into some place that you are not. So I'm dehumanizing you in one way. And I'm putting you as you are my superhero. No? Not it's not so much about being human beings relating to one another, but putting someone on a superhero pedestal. Because many of us need our superheroes. And again, <clears throat> sometimes that takes the guru to be seen not only as superhero in some templates, it's not so much the superhero template, sometimes will be the, the pop star template, no? the celebrity template. Uh, and, and many people may even look for a guru because of that. I want a guru who is celebrity-like. I like I like to have that feeling of ah, so many people is worshiping him and so many followers he has and so much donation he received and everything in terms of pomp and grandiosity, which can be there, and but it cannot be there also. It, should, it shouldn't be a, a necessity. If my motivation to have his that guru is because he's famous around the world and he's kind of, that's not the proper motivation to have accept someone as a guru. What if that guru has only one disciple, like Rupa Goswami? Is Rupa Goswami less because he only had one disciple? <laughs> Sanatan Goswami had zero disciples. We will say, oh, zero disciples. Whoosh. That's not so tempting. Sanatan Goswami. You follow my point. It's not about <laughs> who has the biggest following or who has the greatest anything, huh? but who touches my heart in a deep way and, and, and I can really connect and I feel Krishna is coming through that person in my life, whether he's a famous person or nobody knows him. That's totally secondary. <clears throat> because again, if we start to if one as a guru receives wants only treatment as a rock star, superstar, superhero template, that's alienating. Again, that's dehumanizing, and, and you start to become more and more isolated because you are so much up there in the pedestal of celebrity pedestal that no, there's no place for nobody else there. It's only you in a bubble of celebrity consciousness. And in time, it's difficult to sustain yourself there by yourself. As we talked the other day, you start to feel lonely. If it's only me there on the top and everyone else below saying Kijai, <laughs> it feels quite lonely, quite cold, so to say, in the top. In the and you need to share with someone. And, and, and that's why sometimes even some practitioners serving in that capacity left the situation because they needed to to come down to earth, so to say, <laughs> and relate to someone in a more human level, to share from an equal place. So also that's very important, I will say, for gurus to have peers, to have friends, 
to have equals. Because if not, you end up being the only one on the top and everyone else down, and there's nothing in between. And you lose sight with peer review. No, we use peer review for books, but also for people. I need peer review. I need the friends, brothers, sisters who won't treat me as superhero, rock star, Nitesi Dash, Avatar, but <laughs> will talk to me, look at me right to my eye and tell me all the things that they feel they need to, with lots of affection as a friend, intimate, but they may use very strong words. No? And we have to be open to that. That, that's what real friendships say. No? There's one saying, I think, by Oscar Wilde. Say the real friends will stab you on the front. No? Never, not, not like on your back. So a real friend will like, so to say, like, you will see it's coming. And I won't do it from behind. It's, I love you. <laughs> <laughs> of course, the stabbing means they will tell me things that they may be difficult and bitter, but I need to hear. So if I'm if I'm serving as a guru, it doesn't mean that I don't need to change. I don't need to hear anything. That's a dangerous situation. <clears throat> and we may become easily addicted to just receiving praise. So let's see the master will call that intoxication of batsalia, because he says like it's like a father who is a batsalia figure, just hearing from their child. Daddy, you are the best father of the world. Daddy, there's nobody like you. You are the best. And the dad is like, say the game, please. <laughs> <sighs> one more time, one more time. I go, oh. He even trains the child to say that over and over, like a parrot. Say it, say it again. Oh. And then comes a friend who stabs you on the front. It's like, I don't like that. You call your child, say it again. Ah, I only want to hear this type of feedback. So he becomes intoxicated with Batsalia, addicted to ki, drowning in an overdose of Kijais. <laughs> Let's put it like that. <laughs> so it's important to keep balance with peers and friends and brothers, to be surrounded by at least one intimate friend that we can fully trust and be ourselves and so on and so forth. As I say, sometimes in this template of over-idealization, we may even think things that the guru cannot be no, again, it's omniscient, does not in Shastra, or because if we think Gurudev is omniscient, I may I may ask something. Let's say I may ask even something that I, I don't need to ask to a guru, but I may ask Gurudev which car to buy. The guru is not supposed to give you advice on cars. He may share something like sharing feedback in a loving way, but you shouldn't absolutize that. Maybe he gave you a wrong advice on that. And it doesn't mean your guru is fallen or, or non-bonafide. It's just like, that's not his area of expertise. But if you go to the omniscient template, it's like, no, no, but he's omniscient. So he has to know the best of every possible field of knowledge. And that's like, that's too much. No? <laughs> don't don't over-expect that because we'll be suffering so much. Because if my guru says, okay, buy this car. And you buy the car and it end up be a disaster. And you will be like, but Gurdev knows everything perfect. So it, was, it has been my mistake in some way. And you start like to go crazy yourself or feel shame because something I must have gone wrong because he cannot ever be wrong in anything. And it's like, relax a bit. Probably he was wrong in that. And it's okay. And there comes the test. I'm willing to love my guru despite some mistakes. Of course, 
when I say some mistakes, I'm talking, we should make a difference between grave mistakes and mild mistakes. Of course, ideally in the guru, we shouldn't find grave mistakes that are compromising his, her integrity and terrible things happening, which sometimes have happened, we'll go there, but there is place for mild mistakes. Like the example I gave, I don't know, a guru may be giving a lecture and forgotten shloka, a verse. And it's not like, okay, that's a lila. He's testing us to see. No, no, no. He forgot the shloka. No, it's okay. It's okay. He's not less. No? Like when someone asks Sila Prabhupada, who is this yuga avatar of Treta Yuga? He say, I don't know. He replied like that. And it's like, Prabhupada doesn't know something. No? Relax. He's still proper. I mean, you can still love him. And this, he's offering you a chance to love him unconditionally. Because you can love him despite he forgot something. That's also an important point. How much we're willing to love our guru or Krishna or whomever unconditionally. Sometimes we don't allow ourselves to see any imperfection because we are not ready to offer unconditional service. Many times it's, I only love you if you are perfect. Which that speaks more about our limited capacity to love. Because if you show me that you are not perfect, my whole faith collapses and, and everything is a hoax. And I say, no, no, who says that? You have to be willing to offer love unconditionally, which means despite imperfection, I love you. So there can be, there can be some imperfections, some, again, mild mistakes. We have to be able to separate between the two. Because if we don't make this separation, just a mild mistake will, or will make our faith collapse, or we'll try to dismiss that altogether, or whatever. Or if there is a great mistake, we will try to over-justify that. No, no, it's, it's just a lila, and sometimes we need to, to add address things as they are, basically. <clears throat> so I'm saying a few things that some of you, I'm not saying you, but some of us, <laughs> sometimes we may think, but Maharaj, you are kind of, it sounds like you are kind of relativizing the guru in certain aspects. And of course, there is a relative side to the guru, and there is the absolute side. And there is the absolute side where Krishna flows through that representative but there is a relative side when there are things that some shortcomings or mild mistakes can be acknowledged and it's okay. It's not getting in the way of the other thing. And we should separate the two. And someone can say, but if you go to the scriptures, <clears throat> Shastra glorifies the guru like nothing. Like Shastra is hyper glorifying the guru and it's is inviting everyone to fully surrender to the guru and give your life completely from tip to toe. So, yes, and I'm not denying that. Shastra is hyper-glorifying the guru, but it's not over-glorifying the guru. I say, man, you can over-glorify your guru. Like I say, you can say to him, you're omniscient, guru there. That's over-glorifying the guru. In a proper, in, in another sense, you can never glorify a genuine guru enough. But you can over-glorify a guru. You follow? By praising inaccurately, ascribing to him qualities that only are to be found in Krishna. When Rupa Goswami mentions 64 qualities of Krishna, he says, 
the first 50 can be found in human beings. From that up, those will be found in Narayan or Shiva, only in Krishna. So if you take some of those qualities, and one of them is omniscience, <laughs> and you ascribe them to a human being, even a pure devotee, that that's that's that will be a case of over glorification. And we should understand that when the Shastra is hyper glorifying the Guru in a healthy way, the Shastra is assuming that the Guru Shastra is glorifying is perfectly acting as a Guru. Do you follow my point? Because someone might say, let's say someone acting as a Guru misbehaves. It has happened. Let's be realistic. And someone say, okay, that Guru starts to be abusive. But Shastra say that one should surrender completely to the Guru. Yeah, as far as that person is behaving as such. Because when the Shastra say the Guru is perfect and absolute and pure and beautiful, it's assuming that person is perfectly representing the Guru agency. It's not considering a, a, a distorted representation. It's misguided. You follow my point. It's like if you go to an encyclopedia to see the description of an apple, probably you won't find a description of a rotten apple. <laughs> the, the, the encyclopedia will describe an ideal apple. It's red and it has this shape. Oh, that's an apple, an ideal one. Shastra won't, uh, encyclopedia will describe a rotten one. That's an exception to the rule, let's say like that. So in the same way, there are different degrees of representation of Krishna that different individual gurus will offer. And the praise that Shastra is mentioning for the guru should be applied accordingly to how much the guru representative is acting as such. You follow my point? If you as a guru are representing, properly acting as a guru in an 89%, let's put it like that. So whatever Shastra is saying about the guru applies to you 89%. There is an 11% that you are not acting up to the expected ideal, so to say. And again, if a guru is misbehaving, to that degree, that person is not guru. We shouldn't surrender to that because that's not guru. That's a misrepresentation of the agents. It's like if you find a policeman. So you as a civil person are ordered to respect the policeman and as, as long as the policeman is representing the police department. If the policeman's behavior is divorced from the police department, I won't obey that person. I won't submit to that person because he is corrupted. He's not following the police department. Follow the analogy. If, if he is following, okay, policemen are someone who will ideally protect and take care and so on. But if you are using your position of power to corrupt and abuse, you are not representing the police department. So you are no longer worthy of my submission and surrender or trust, whatever you want to put it. So that's also a point I want to clarify when we read all the things in Shastra, how you should surrender fully to a guru. Yes, but the Shastra is considering that guru is fully qualified, a fully proper representative. If not, you have to apply another criteria. The Shastra is considering the ideal example, not apadharma. Apadharma means emergency cases. Then you have to go to another criteria, common sense again. 
a few more words before concluding. Another, sometimes we are still talking about this over-idealization and the responsibility of us as disciples. Sometimes we, we may tend to this idea of every single guru is necessarily Nutan Bhagavad and the highest type of devotee or Nitya Siddha coming from Golok Vrindavan. Uh, and whatever that means for any person. But as I say always, how you can prove that? I mean, I'm not denying that that can happen. I'm just saying there is no way that you can test. Okay, this is coming from Golok Vrindavan. This is pure devotee that was made on earth. This Sadhana Siddha Nitya. I mean, there's no like a thermometer that you can apply and see. So the real question here will be, why do you need to establish that? Why do you need your guru to be a Nitya Siddha coming from Golok Vrindavan? Why? Why your faith needs that? <laughs> you follow my point? Sometimes not so much. Oh, you are an offender to my guru because you say that he's not coming from Golok Vrindavan. Because sometimes that happens. No? Uh, we'll say, I don't know. Uh, I, I've heard about saying, okay, if, if, if the guru is not in the highest possible position and serve, he still serves as a guru, he's a cheater. And it's like, no, no, it's not like that. There's more nuance to this. Now, many of our acharyas say you can be a guru acting on the Madhyam platform, on not necessarily the Uttam Uttam platform, but sometimes we enter more into the apparat neurosis. No? Don't dare to, to, to hint that any guru can be less than Uttam. That's upper, you are an apparatus. We were talking yesterday. Sometimes this label of apparatus can be a little heavy and a little uh, too much. Because someone can commit an apparat, I mean, who is free from that? But it doesn't mean that everything we are doing is an apparat. But sometimes someone commits an unapparat and is labeled as apparadhi. Like your whole being is made of apparat or something like that. And that's not the case, no? So we should be also, I mean, there's lots of weaponization of, of the apparat term, you know, like, if you are thinking too much, be careful. That will be apparatus. Don't be an apparatus. And everyone we will come paralyzed. So I don't want to be an apparatus. So then I won't think. Then I won't feel. Then I won't say anything because I will be an apparatus. So we are canceling all possibilities of genuine conversation in many cases just out of fear of not engaging in apparatus. Apparatus means you have a bad intention in your heart. I mean, technically speaking, apparatus is not some accidental mistake you made. Oh, I step into the shadow of, of, of the deity. I'm such an apparat. I mean, if you didn't have the intention, that's not count as apparat. It's where your heart is hmm, that makes an apparat or not. Hmm. So we should also like decompress a little bit this pressure of apparat neurosis, so to say. And as I mentioned, in Shastra, it does not say that all gurus should be Nitya Siddhas or perfect beings, eternally liberated, because that also poses a problem as much as we think that will be a blessing. If I tell you that every single guru comes from the spiritual world, means they have no experience of all the things you are going through in your conditioned state. So in other words, they are not capable of empathizing with what you are going through. So how much can they guide you? <laughs> how much they can understand what you are going through. So you follow my point. I mean, at least for me, that doesn't sound very 
compelling, very attractive. No? Exactly, exactly. Because if not, it doesn't give too much hope. Everyone who is a guru already is coming from. Nobody can reach there from here. It's not that okay. I would like to reach that guru position, not from that place, but it doesn't speak too nice about bhakti, about the power of bhakti. Nobody here can reach that. Everyone comes from above. No? So yeah, it, it can actually undermine our faith instead of nourishing it. Mm -hmm. And again, and, and, and if we say all the gurus are only coming from the spiritual world, we are suddenly deprived of a role model to follow and see, okay, I can study the life of that person and be inspired with how he or she went through all those struggles and ups <laughs> and downs and, and mastered this challenging scenario. But if they are eternally liberated, no, that was a lila. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes we, we have this reductionistic capacity like that's Lila or Achintya or Aparad. <laughs> we know which word to invoke to stop the conversation from flowing. <laughs> <coughs> so again, if someone is eternally liberated, they are deprived of all this nuance of the journey and experiences that we need role models to empathize with. Mm -hmm. Like again, example of the Bilba Mangala Thakur that we know he went through all the situation with the prostitute and the, he's not less of a Siddha, of a perfected being by going through that. On the contrary, this is like, wow, that inspires me. When you, there's this biography of Bhaktivinoda Thakur called Swalikita Jivani. And I know many devotees do not like to read that and do not allow to read that. Because in that biography, Bhakti Notakur speaks openly about his pre-Gaudiya chapters where he was even non-vegetarian and he was for some moments connected with Advaita Vedanta and other traditions. But for some, it's like, that's, that would better not read that because I would put Bhakti Notakur in a relative light. But if you have the proper foundation, it's like, wow, I'm so inspired by, by his journey. And, and, and he is he is boxing Thakur. Wow. So I can identify with that. So anyhow, I think that's important. As I mentioned, the actual question is why do I need to make every my guru need to see the Bhutan Bhagavata? Is because of my strong faith or is it because of a lack of faith? <laughs> because externalism like I have so much faith. In every guru that I say and know that everyone is need to see that no, that's not strong faith, that's weak faith. You you want everyone to be the best because if not you cannot deal with the situation. <laughs> you are not willing to offer unconditional service. If they are not the highest, oh, they, I don't want to be connected with that person. Sometimes it can be even an elitist thing. I want my guru to be the highest of the highest always. So by extension, I am the highest because I'm connected to the highest. <laughs> or even sometimes we may also over-idealize the guru as a way of not taking responsibility as disciples. No, Guru, there you are a mission, you all know everything, whatever you say, I will do. And if then something doesn't work, it was your fault because you told me to do this. I just surrender. You follow my point? So that, that can be, again, unconsciously sometimes, uh, different ways if, like we as disciples, may not be doing our part and entering into a relationship. Sometimes guru-disciple relationship can end up in very strange templates like codependency also. 
that can happen. All the external, it seems like surrender, there's actual codependency. You are using the external form of surrender to avoid the internal substance of surrender. As we say yesterday, we can use humility, surrender, all the things, the external form of that, to make a performance of that to avoid internally actually going through that. So what to speak if, if one of the two in that relationship is a narcissistic person? If you're a narcissistic person, the, the perfect, how to say, the perfect fit for the narcissistic person is a codependent person. And sometimes that can happen between guru and disciple. If there is not proper awareness, proper preparation, um, and there can be lots of spiritual bypassing in that relationship. In the name of spirituality, we are just bypassing, bypassing, evading, escaping. So, <coughs> so that's something. On another thing also we could say, because that question has come for those who have been connected with someone serving as guru who eventually didn't happen to be up to the occasion, let's put it like that. <laughs> uh, if you want to say they they fell down, I don't know, that, that expression sometimes is a little bit strange because it sounds a little bit like he fell down. I mean, we fell down. We, we don't fell down. We are falling continuously. I remember once I was talking to a devotee in Argentina, he said like, I don't fall down too often because I'm, I'm, I, I, wait, I stand up sometimes. Because they will sometimes will say, oh, sometimes I fall down. And this is what we'll say. Sometimes I, I stand up. I'm mostly falling down. No? <laughs> so we, what do we imply with these words? But sometimes we may have been connected with someone who eventually didn't represent it, the guru department. And we may ask why this happened to me, why Krishna sent that. But we may question a few things. But also we should be also grateful for whatever we learn from that person, even we learn what not to do, how not to be. <laughs> hopefully something positive and also trust for some reason that was the person that i needed to meet during that time that was the, the guru figure and now in this new situation i'm i'm open to a new manifestation of the guru tattva department mm -hmm. and it's okay mm -hmm. and i know it and, and also probably my guru may not be always a need to see that super perfect person i know that may feel risky for us but, but if he's not super perfect, there may be the risk of something happening. But that's life. what's life about. Well, we have to establish relationships where there may be potential risk. <laughs> if we want always to be perfect and warranted before starting, how much willing we are again to offer unconditional love and service? Of course, with this, I'm not saying just accept the guru without any consideration and be completely stupid about that. Sanatana Goswami says, at least live together for a year, which sometimes in practice is not possible, but you can, at least you can have an idea, how much do I get acquainted with a person living together for a year? I, I should acquire the same level of acquaintance with my guru, whether I live together or not. If I not live together, it may take more than a year. Again, it's not like a universal formula, but the, the spirit of that instruction is take time to know each other. So both of you are really convinced because the two have to accept each other. Not only the disciple has to accept the guru, the guru has to accept the disciple. Sometimes people <coughs> write 
Jack Maharaj, uh, I, I have been listening to your lecture for so many years, and and you are and you are my sexual guru. And I was like, I, I never agreed to that part of the contract. <laughs> it's not that you decide I'm I'm already there. I mean, it's, again, it's mutual. If not, it's not mutual. It's impersonal. It's like imagine it's like you call someone. I decided you are my wife tomorrow from now on. <laughs> I want to just to notify you about that. It's like, okay. <laughs> I thought I had some word to play here, no? So, anyhow. So, a few more words just to conclude in connection to <coughs> to gurus expressing accountability when some mistakes are there, because that's a, a very important point. Hmm? If a guru commits a mistake, again, a, a, a mild mistake, okay, the guru forgot the verse, don't need to make a public announcement of apology to the community. No, it's okay. At least, you, but you can say I forgot the verse. That's good. <laughs> uh, don't try to disguise that. Oh, it was Alila. I'm testing you to see how you react, <laughs> to see if you know the verse. No, at least th that level. But if there are a little bit more delicate mistakes, sometimes it can happen. Hopefully not, but life happens. So there should be there should be some accountability. Hmm? Because again, if we don't make any distinction between these two mild and grave mistakes, you can just open the door for abuse. No? Oh, it was a mild mistake, or it was a Leela, uh, or Dave is testing my surrender by abusing me. <laughs> no, 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 it's something else. No? I'm speaking in general, of course, I'm not addressing any specific situation, but but it's important that we make some, some distinction. Let me share one section from here in that connection, in connection to the dangers of relativizing, absolutizing the relative side of the guru. Says so if I have absolutized the relative side of my guru, well, I already mentioned that, but I will reread it. And he advises them wrongly on some relative issue, then my over-absolutizing faith will collapse, or B, since the guru must always be right, then I will blame myself, experience absolute failure, and enter an endless trip of brutal feelings of shame and guilt. Um, yeah. So we have to have everything in, in place. And the guru has to be willing to be, be, be hold accountable. That's the English word, yeah. And if, and, and if that's a delicate thing that has to even... I will say, and you have that in history, genuine gurus have allowed the public to witness hmm, their own correction in order to promote education on a societal level. Now, that's very humbling. If a genuine guru publicly acknowledges some mistake that needs to be acknowledged as such, whomever witnesses that, that's a lesson. That's a humbling lesson. That's inspiring. Hmm? Like one example, Vyasadeva in the Bhagavatam, slightly different but connected. Vyasadeva is totally frustrated after compiling all the scriptures and feeling, I failed. And he's not hiding that. He's making that open. I mean, we know all of us know about that. <laughs> the whole world knows about that. And the result of that public acknowledgement of the shortcoming, so to say, is the Bhagavatam. Then Narad came, instructed Vyasa, and the Bhagavatam came as a result, and our whole lineage revolves around the Bhagavatam. So our whole, <laughs> our whole lineage, we could say, 
comes as a result of a genuine guru correcting himself. So that can be so powerful. That's my point. Not only inspiring, but that can create such a powerful thing. <clears throat> so it's important that we, we hold people accountable for their behavior. That's not chastising people. That's actually genuine affection and love and concern. Even if I want to practice compassion for other people, one of the ways to properly express compassion is first to start by setting boundaries and holding people accountable. Compassion is not just, oh, you do whatever you want. It's okay. I love you. I have compassion. That's not compassion. That's evasiveness. <laughs> Real compassion is I'm setting boundaries, holding you accountable with affection, with love for your behavior. Sometimes in delicate cases, that can even take uh, not only the guru correcting the disciple, but the disciple correcting the guru. Narhari Sarkart mentions that in his Krishna Bhajanamrita. He says if the guru deviates from the proper behavior, the disciple should talk to him in private and try to correct him in, in a loving spirit. Again, not like now I'm your guru, but emergency situation, the disciple will take a spirit of service and express it from that place now, which... Of course, ideally, hopefully, non, no disciple has to go through that <laughs> because that will imply your guru is deviating. But if that's happening, there is a place for showing your affection to your guru by correcting him, her, in a loving way to please Gurudev, go back to the proper path. This is not, this is not what you taught me all this time. <laughs> this is not the, what Shastra says. This is not your own teaching. What's, please come back. Again, if guru and disciple both are sincere, ultimately it doesn't matter who corrects whom. If, if the two of you are open, willing to grow, feeling that yourself students forever, in the words of Shilesiama, it's not that the guru, oh, now my disciple is correcting. If that was accurate and I needed that, the guru will take that and vice versa. All of that may be more exception to the rule, but again, exception happens sometimes. And again, here we go to the importance of being <clears throat> having open relationships, close relationships, both as disciples, both as gurus, uh, where we can be held accountable, we can be shown what we can do best. Um, I mean, we, we don't need to do something terrible to be corrected. Again, no? I mean, sometimes we end up doing something terrible, but before that terrible thing, there were slight deviations taking place till it finally takes shape of like, oh, this happened. So we need to be cocked before that big thing happens, so to say, and be properly held accountable. And if I'm humble, I don't have a problem. I will identify more, as I mentioned in my book, I will identify more for my future self that is being benefited at present by that correction that by my ego protesting in the present, I'm being corrected. <laughs> that may be uncomfortable, but I'm, if I'm deep and intelligent, I will realize this is really blessing me for the future to be a, a better person. So I will identify with that and allow the correction in the present to happen. So, so, so someone serving as guru also needs to receive help. Because also that's a danger. If you are in a position of authority or leadership, 
you can feel I'm only here to give help. And you can also, this is a delicate thing, try to get the point. Someone like serving as guru or anyone, but I'm pointing about the guru, a guru can derive self-worth from never needing help, but always offering it. You follow? From that place, they will derive their self-worth. I'm always helping others. I'm always helping others. I don't need help. I don't need help. That's not self-worth. I mean, it's nice to help others. I'm not against it, but also you need to be helped. You need to learn how to receive. It's not only about giving. Sometimes receiving is more difficult than giving. Because if you have to receive, you have to be humble to receive also. You have to know from which place to receive. So it's a humble receiving. <laughs> As a good receiving help, receiving correction, receiving mercy, receiving affection, receiving whatever. You have to also receive. You have to give. <clears throat> so anyhow, some thoughts I want to share. As I mentioned, maybe all this is more like of an introduction. It's 55 minutes, although it was one hour, 20 minutes in this case. We have the five minute remaining of how to solve the problems of navigating <clears throat> abuse amid, or betrayal. But I want to share some of these words because sometimes, again, so we are not naive and we are not just over-idealizing, over-expecting, but also we, we don't end up going to the other extreme of being cynical. Because generally the most cynical people are the ones who began being over-idealistic. They're over-idealistic, they are betrayed, they go to the extreme of cynicism. <laughs> and we need to be in between those two. We need to learn how to trust with criterion and common sense, hmm? uh, discerning, but also learning to trust. Even if we have been betrayed, and I know that being betrayed is one of the most painful things in your life, and I have personal experience of that, so I, I, I know I can walk my talk, so to say. <laughs> but that's very painful, and that can make our heart by instinct to close and not to be open to fully trust someone, at least for some time. <laughs> and it's okay. Now, I'm not promoting that, like, yes, remain there forever. But it's a process. No? It's a process to, 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 to digest the betrayal. Now, first of all, we have to allow emotions to happen, whatever they have to be. Because in the, maybe you were being betrayed and you were like, Okay, as a devotee, you have to be the well-wisher of everyone, so I will pray for that person for the best. And maybe, no, no, maybe you need to be angry first. Maybe you need to shout, scream, and break everything in your kitchen, <laughs> so to say. Uh, you may need to be depressed. You may be suffering. I mean, you need to those emotions to, to arise. If you repress them, you depress them, you get depressed. You get depressed when you are depressing, putting something low. So you may need all those things to, to come first, whatever you need to be, uh, to, whatever needs to be experienced. Right? You need to grieve. Not like Grieving is a whole sacred chapter. It's not like, okay, let's move forward to the next chapter. No, no, you may need the whole time for proper grieving, that particular loss or betrayal, and then acknowledging the facts of the situation, if there was abuse, how it happened, and Acknowledging while not entering to full victim consciousness, but also probably were a victim of abuse. It can happen. And then we can speak about healing. 
trying to heal the wound and trying to be transformed by the wound at, at the same time. Uh, and eventually, hopefully, we can forget, no? not remain resentful, bitter, for forget. But as the saying goes, forget by not forgive. No, forgive by not forget, sorry. <laughs> no, don't edit my class and put it out of context. <laughs> this saying is there, no? always forgive, never forget. No, like if someone abused me, okay, it means I will try to forgive eventually, but I won't forget. I have, I, I know from that experience how to behave in the future and so on. And after all that, maybe our heart will be gradually ready to trust again, gradually to open, to open gradually, gradually. We may be trusting a little bit and we feel there's risk. It can happen again, <laughs> but what to do? What's, what's the other solution? Close your heart forever and don't trust anyone. And there's no risk of being heart, broken hearted, but you become like a rock also because you are not trusting. So that's not working. So there is an element of risk, but we have to be willing to go through that. Krishna will protect. And if we have to go through some other situation of betrayal, <laughs> there is another lesson to learn. It's not that we are looking for that, but if we have come upon that, we cannot also blame Krishna or blame anyone. It's just, I have to learn something here. And what to speak, if we are over and over again going through similar patterns, I have to learn something here. Why I'm ending up here in the same place over and over again. <laughs> so, again, it's not easy. I'm not here giving you any magical formula to heal trauma and betrayal in, in a weekend or something. It doesn't happen like that. The formula actually is, Let's try to respect and honor all these processes and let's receive hopefully some <clears throat> tools and criterion to remain realistic, humanly realistic in our approach in this case to the guru-disciple relationship. So nobody, guru nor disciple, end up over-idealizing each other, over-expecting from each other, over-demanding from each other. Uh, and each one can develop a healthy teamwork connection based on the actual capacities of each other and, and accept that in a in a more normal really normalized realistic way anyhow some thoughts i hope that shed some light and hopefully prevent some avoidable uh, traumatic situations <laughs> or helps to heal traumatic situations we may need to heal so we have a few minutes if someone has questions you may like to present on connection to the topic, ideally. My one has one there. So, please, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, the guru's function mostly is to, according to what the scriptures describe, the guru is, sometimes we say, spiritual guide. So the guru is to guide us on a spiritual level, on, to teach shastra, let's put it more technically, the guru is to teach the scripture, the truth presented in, in the sacred revelation, to explain it to the disciple, to address the question the disciple may have in connection to Again, who God is, what's the process to connect with him, to develop the relationship, what's the goal of life. All these truths, all this area of knowledge, 
the guru has to be <clears throat> able to express and present to the disciple and address, address his or her doubts. And of course, give a proper example of supporting those teachings with his or her daily behavior. Period. That's it. That's all. I mean, that's not that's not little, just in case. No, it's not only that. <laughs> no, I'm not saying you are saying that. But, but of course, my point is, in some cases, of course, the guru may be. In some cases, it doesn't have to be a rule. In some cases, a guru may assist the disciple in some other areas of his or her life, if he is capable or he's willing. The situation remains, but it must. It doesn't have to be a rule. Again, as I mentioned, it doesn't, my guru doesn't have to be a professional psychologist. And if I need professional assistance on a psychological level, in that case, the guru will say, go to a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist. And you need that. Like, like you need some, you are ill in your body. Guru may say, I'm not a doctor. Go to a doctor. You are ill in your mind. Go to a doctor, psychologist. I'm not. Or if the guru has some capacity to help, okay. But we shouldn't be like expecting all that. So again, the guru may be willing to help with that. But even if he helps with that in a way that is not accurate, like I mentioned, maybe the guru may have good intention and tries to give some advice on a more whatever area of knowledge, which is not the spiritual area. And the disciple takes that and everything is good intention, nice, but in times it's not working. Then the disciples should be willing or open, open to question the accuracy of that instruction and be okay and talk to the guru even. Like, Gurudev, you, you told me this, this situation, but it's not working. So, and, and, and the conversation continues again. And the guru may say, okay, I try to advise you as best as I call in that area. It's not my area of expertise, so sorry for that. And <laughs> please contact this profession or whatever. Well, again, I'm giving just examples. But yeah, ideally the role of the guru is to basically guide someone in in terms of ed giving education on the context of the scriptures, giving an example that supports that and accompany the, the practitioner in his or her journey to navigate the, the different landscapes of the spiritual experience, so to say. So, which is a lot. Again, it's not, it's not little thing. And sometimes something extra may come, and if it works, great. You're very fortunate if the guru can guide you in some other areas. But if he cannot, we shouldn't think, oh, he's not so a great thing, or, or he's not bona fide enough because he's not, again, psychologist, marital advisor, financial coach, and this and that. And I've seen gurus trying to fulfill all those simultaneous roles. And though that created lots of problems. Because generally, you are not an expert in everything. <laughs> but if you present yourself as such and you have people believing that and trying to implement your inaccurate guidance on all those things and, not, and that not working, that creates lots of problem, confusion, problems in their faith. Again, neurosis in the disciple, like something I must be doing wrong because whatever Gurudev says is immaculate. I think we need to normalize a little bit on that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 
So my question is that uh, what actually Guru Nishtha means? Is that Nishtha means uh, Nishtha to the Parampara? Siddhanta of the Parampara? Yeah, Guru Nishtha can mean different things. Again, it's not limited to one understanding. Nishtha means firm faith. And Guru means different things, as we explained, not limited to one individual. So if you understand Guru as Samasti Guru, as the universal Guru archetype, Krishna revealing himself through so, so you have to have firm faith about the principle of divine guidance that will come to your life no matter what. Now, that's one way of putting it. Even if your physical guru, let's put it like that, end up betraying you, and you cannot have Guru Nishta in that person for obvious reasons, you can still have Guru Nishta in the principle that Krishna's the original guru is still protecting, guiding you, and preserving the connection with you and the parampara and the mercy and the shelter. So that's a way of expressing Guru Nishtha. And if you are connected with a Vyasti Guru, human representative, the parampara, you will have yeah, deep faith in that person if everything is in place. <laughs> of course, you are uh, invited to develop deep trust and confidence in, in that particular person. Uh, again, based on your own experience that everything is working and by extension of course that goes to the whole of the parampara so but yeah basically speaks about the the principle of that the relationship with the guru principle has to be based on trust huh? whether it takes one form or another again we need to continue trusting in some direction even with the particular again even if even if there was betrayal <laughs> and we cannot trust in that direction Still, we should remain trust, even if we cannot trust anyone on planet Earth. If you feel like that, <laughs> Krishna still is to be fully trusted. And I'm not saying there's nobody on planet Earth to trust, but we may feel like that. So, hopefully, that doesn't transgress planet Earth and Krishna also enters into that equation. Krishna cannot trust you because then who you can trust? That's over, game over. So at least with everything, everyone is failing, you know that I can fully trust Bhagavan. And even when I don't know why this is happening or why, even if there's lots of uncertainty, but on a very foundational level, I have to have this profound trust and knowing. Yeah, again, as we say, the presence of his unconditional love is there unconditionally. So I try, I can trust that. <coughs> And hopefully extend that in other directions as well. Not just take that as an excuse, like, I only trust Krishna. I always trust, He will never fail. I only trust Krishna. I don't want to risk my trust with all you imperfect relative guys here on earth. So I keep my trust. And I understand if someone went through some heavy betrayal and you want just to concentrate on trusting Bhagavan, okay, I, under, I, I can understand. But that shouldn't be also an excuse to not exercising your trust here on a daily basis. So, yeah. And then I have another question is that we have Siksha Gurus and Diksha Gurus as well, but uh, who becomes our eternal Guru? It's true that if we ca if can't get back to spiritual world this life, then the Gurus again comes. So who becomes that Guru? That's not a, 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 like a mathematical formula. No, like it, it's, it's all about who and it doesn't be limited to one. No, imagine this guru you have in this world, in this life you have a, two main guru figures in your life. 
to give an example, now you may have one who is your Diksha Guru and you have someone else who is complementing that beautifully as your Siksha Guru. And the two of them are close to one another and the two of them are close to you. So, of course, Krishna will make the arrangement that eventually those, the two of them will be close to you in your eternal life. It's not that it has to be limited to one. So it, there, you have to get free read from certain structures in which we kind of think like, okay, there will be like this and he will be, you know, it's, more, it's way more spacious. No, spiritual words, way more spacious. And maybe if you have even gurus in your previous life that you don't remember, they will be there. Somehow they will be all hanging out together, so to say. No? And, and if you yeah, there, Krishna will make the arrangement for that to happen. Even if we don't have an idea how that will take place, we cannot just overthink everything. And, and at the end of the day, as I say always, quoting Srila Siddharmaraj, if someone asks you who is the most important guru, Diksha Guru, Siksha Guru, he will say the one who is helping you the most. And, and that person naturally will be closest to you. That's it. It's, it's all about what's going on inside of you. <laughs> uh, yes. And again, even if you have in this life a connection with the guru and it's so close to you and you would like to remain eternally connected to that person, but also you, you feel, okay, but that guru in this lifetime probably reach per, reaches perfection and goes to the spiritual world, but I won't go to the spiritual world this lifetime for whatever reason. And we have a few more lifetimes to go. So what I will what will happen? I will forget. I will remember how, how and you just start again to try to calculate. <laughs> so you have to be like quiet, like Krishna will make an all perfect arrangement, way better than how we can. Even if you try to figure out everything in the best possible way, Krishna will do it even better than that. <laughs> and we have to surrender to that also, to trust him above us. <laughs> Something else. You raised your hand before? Yes. yes. Just combining what you talked about, um, <coughs> put it in simple terms. So you were talking about answering the first question about what areas the guru should be advising us, and sometimes it may not come as a as advice that we need to, or we can heed or not heed, but sort of instructions when mm -hmm. they don't turn out the way we expected, then yeah. that, that makes us lose faith. Um, so how to understand what you talked about? Somebody can be spiritually really advanced, but maybe they not necessarily lacking or lacking in certain areas when they are getting instructions that we feel that we need to follow. They don't work out, and that results in total loss of faith. And often, case is not just in that particular guru, but like the principle of guru as well. Mm -hmm. so, how, how to unravel this sense of Hmm. Well, I will say again that for me, and I'm talking in general, we are not addressing any specific situation because sometimes for a specific situation we need specific ways of addressing that, knowing the details of that. But I will say it's crucial that this dialogue is kept between guru and disciple, which I know sometimes it's not so easy and, and that's another layer of the problem because traditionally traditionally let's put let's begin with the traditionally 
a disciple will go and live with the guru and they will live together and talk to each other and live. So my point is there was this feedback and, and, and I can understand in time certain dynamics were there, not only talking about Srila Prabhupada, but even, I don't know, Narottam Dastakur, he had thousands of disciples also. So we see that there are references with, there, there, and I'm sure Narottam Dastakur was not having time for talking personally with thousands of disciples because his day had 24 hours, like hours, not thousands of hours. <laughs> but somehow or other, and I don't know, different forms can be there, there should be some arrangement to have it. <clears throat> I mean, Prabhupada, although he had thousands of disciples, he spent quite some time writing letters and, and at that loss of time. I mean, that takes time to keep no, communication and contact and as much as he could. And of course, there were local leaders trying to represent him. And maybe for some, they were more like local guides, so to say, although sometimes they didn't represent him that nicely. So many varieties are there. <coughs> but I will say that if the guru gives <clears throat> an instruction that sounds like, okay, there's no two way, two option, options here. It's like, do this. And you try to do it as best as you can and it's not working, whatever, that may be the not working. <laughs> there should be a place for one to talk to one's guru and present it's not working for me. There should be place for that. It's not that you should be ashamed because it's not working, no? like feeling, again, I must be wrong because it's not working. You can open, be open to that. Okay, probably I'm doing something wrong. That's why I'm not working. I'll, I'll spend some time trying to pray and be introspective and see if there's something I have to change so it works. Or maybe the instruction of Guru Dev was for me to fail. I mean, to do that and fail and learn the lesson through that. I don't know. I'm talking in general again. Some situation may not be the case, but in some cases, I'm not saying that he had the intention to do that. But sometimes, yeah, Krishna's will can operate through a surrender agent to say something that that took us to some form of failure and through that failure learn a lesson that we should, wouldn't have learned that otherwise. That can happen also. But also it, it can be the case that that's not happening and I'm getting more traumatized and more affected and it's not getting better. I'm not learning any lesson. <laughs> I'm drowning here. So you have to talk to your guru and, and, and one has to have hopefully, I mean, the guru hopefully has common sense. And, and if the disciple said this is not working and I'm losing my faith in the whole parampara principle, <laughs> hopefully the guru will be willing to adjust and not just like continue insisting till it works, which basically is burn out to death. <laughs> so again, a guru has to be sensitive enough that Sometimes, and Prabhupada had that common sense. He sometimes gave instruction, disciple will tell him, it's not working. Okay, so let's try like this. I mean, it's, it's, it's again, it's a, it's a dialogue. It's a communication, teamwork. Like I mentioned in my book, a guru ideally shouldn't, it's not so much that the guru is telling the disciple what to do. Ideally, it will be the guru is hearing with the disciple what gods want the disciple to do. It's like a mutual hearing and conversation. And again, I know that requires dialogue, communication, intimacy. In some cases, that may not be the case. Hopefully, there is some representative playing that role because we need we need close figures in our life, like mentors. 
that we can take shelter in. And again, I'm, I'm speaking in general. I know that specific situations may have their specific issues, but I will say that dialogue is, is key. You know, it's key. If I cannot talk to my guru, that's like how much, how much, of course, what can say the relationship is, is transcendental, it's beyond words. I get the point, but who is on that level also? No? Most of us needs and and one of the duty of the disciple is pranipatena, pariprasnena, sorry, as the Gita say, to present questions to the guru. To present questions means to have communication with the I have to present questions, I have to present the question. I have this doubt, I have this struggle, or this not working, or I want to share, whatever you need to share. So that in, implies there is some dialogue going on, ongoing communication. <clears throat> I mean, that will be the ideal template. No, there is place for communication. If something is not working, and one tried, and one tried, it's not working. There's a place for sharing that. The guru is someone who has common sense, will be hearing with the disciple, will make the proper adjustments. Let's continue. And hopefully it works more next time. <laughs> yeah, I would say that. No? And if for some reason, one cannot communicate with one's guru. And one try to follow that instruction as better as one could and it's not working, it's getting... Then one has to take a decision for oneself to make some adjustment to that without entering into a guilt trip that I'm disobeying my guru and I'm betraying him and I'm like an apparati and that long list. After having tried as best and without having the chance of talk to him. Again, I'm taking that like the last resorts <laughs> not like cheaply oh no it's not working so i will i will don't do it i'm not saying that <clears throat> but i'm not saying go to the extreme that you lose all your faith in the whole principle of parampara just by pushing yourself too hard in the name of following your guru in the name of following your guru i lost all faith in the parampara it's like that was not the idea something needs to be adjusted in, in, in between them Again, that's as much as I can say talking generically. Again, specific situations may allow me to offer more specific advice, but we are publicly talking here, so we are addressing situations in a more general way. So I hope that helps in something. <laughs> okay, so almost two hours here. So I think we have had our dose for today on the topic. We need time, as we need time to grieve and process betrayal, we need time to digest and process what we are sharing every day. So we'll stop here. And thank you so much for your presence, your time, your attention, your sincerity. Sri Man Mahaprabhu Ki Jai, Sri Guru Parampara Ki Jai, Sri Sri Gornitananda Ki Jai, Sri Sri Gorgadadarju Ki Jai, Sri Harinam Sankirtan Ki Jai, Sri Mayapur Dham Ki Jai. Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Pramananda Haribo, Panchakalpata Rubhishcha, Kripa Sindhu Vyayivacha, Atita Anampavane Bhyo Vaishnave Bhyo Namon, Ananta Koti Vaishnava Vrinda Ki Jai, Gaur Bhakta Vrinda Ki Jai.